Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you are a visitor or not a regular attender, or if you've only been attending a short time, you've never probably heard me refer to Romans 1 through 8 as the gospel according to Paul. And that might even sound odd to you if you've never heard that expression before. I read that expression years ago because of how it is written and how it unfolds as, it, as Paul presents these first eight chapters in his letter to the Romans. It's not like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not a gospel like that. It's not a gospel that was written uh, explaining Jesus' life and where he went and what he did, as much as trying to unpack the basic, basic message of the gospel so that everyone would be on the same page, so that everyone would understand. And there are some in our world today who would say, well, Paul's not quite the same. I mean, it's not really the same gospel. And I don't buy that at all. If you really understand what Jesus said and how Paul, in particular, unpacks this gospel as he writes. In fact, he would even say that there is another gospel, or there is other gospels. If you were to read, and I've got scriptures for you um, in your outline, I believe, that talk about this other gospel or another gospel that might be out there. And we see the same thing today. But he writes not only in the Romans about this, to the Romans, he writes to the Corinthians about this. He writes to the Galatians about this, that there are other gospels out there. And we see that today. You go to different churches, you go to different denominations, and you will see people preaching a different gospel than what is clear in the Scriptures. What Jesus was trying to say, what the Scriptures unfold. And so there are other gospels out there that are not the gospel. And Paul is clear, in fact, if you look in these first 15 verses, you will see the word gospel used four times. And he will use it several other times throughout this letter. But four times he's trying to make it clear, this is the gospel. He refers to it first as the gospel of God. Then he refers to it as the gospel of Jesus. Then he just refers to it as the gospel. Then he talks about it, of the gospel of of obedience. In other words, when you really understand the gospel and you take the gospel in, that you will seek to be obedient, that you'll seek to bear fruit. That the faith we have is not based on good works. We'll talk about that. But rather, what we do and how we live comes out of the fact that the gospel has penetrated your life. It's real. The gospel is real in your life. Jesus has truly broken in. The Holy Spirit resides there. In your heart, in your life. And he will talk about, not only here, but he'll talk about also, for example, in Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians, the truth 
of the gospel. There is truth. There is falsehood. And that's why he would say at other points, another gospel or other gospels. So that you really understand that there is truth and false. Not this popular, oh, that's just what you believe. I can believe something different. It's all the same. It's not the same. It's not the same. And that's what Paul's also trying to say to the Romans as he writes this letter. Paul, as he writes this letter, is not only trying to get this truth across, he's trying to connect with what's going on there, the individuals, but also the situation. You know, to to completely unpack this letter, and that's why it's going to be a challenge for me to preach over the next ten weeks on the eight chapters, the first eight chapters. I'll do the best I can. But I've always avoided this because I thought, how can I do only ten sermons on this? Charles Spurgeon, who's one of my heroes, he's, he's considered one of the greatest preachers of all time. He, back in his day, I don't know if you know this, back in his day, back in the 19th century, they built a sanctuary because he was so effective in his preaching of 6,000 seats. Back before mega churches were really talked about that much. He had no sound system. He would see 20,000 over the course of a weekend. And he preached a series on Paul's letter to the Romans that spanned, I believe it's eight years. I would love that. But I don't think I could do that. So what I'm going to try to do is compress these eight chapters into ten weeks and try to do the best I can. So we're going to have some long readings coming up. But one of the reasons I'm so committed to this is so that we all are on the same page. We understand the gospel. No matter what your background is. That we're united for the sake of the gospel because Paul was dealing with a potentially explosive situation. There was clearly some tension there. And there were clearly differences there. And he was trying to address it and bring everybody on board before he arrives. See, this letter is different than some of his other letters. That's another thing. Paul wrote to the saints at Rome before he ended up going to Rome. Most of the letters that he wrote, he either had a connection already with the individuals there, like Timothy, Titus, Philemon. He already had a relationship with the churches there, like Philippians, Ephesus, Corinth. But he had not been to Rome. And so his reason for writing is just a little different than the other ones. He probably heard some of the rumors that were going on, some of the tensions that were going on around Rome. He probably had a desire to go to this great city. The center of the Roman Empire. Where incredible buildings had been built. But also where the church was growing. There were several house churches. Where the church was growing and blossoming. Where the church had been, by the way, for 20 years. If you look at Acts chapter 2, you will see that there were Romans, people from Rome, there on Pentecost. So they heard the gospel. They took it back with them. 
And so the church had already grown there. And Paul, over the years, had built relationships with a number of them, which always amazes me, by the way. You know, transportation, we have such access to transportation today. We have cars. We have the ability to fly. Sometimes do sometimes some of us do both at the same time. But we can get around to places so much faster than they could. We have access to constant communication. You connect with people on Facebook. You can connect with people on the Internet. You can even do snail mail and have a bit of confidence that the letter will eventually get there. But back then, how did they build these network of relationships? How did they stay in touch with one another? Paul knew, if you look at Romans 16 when he does his final greetings, Paul knew 26 individuals, Christians, in Rome. 26! Not only that, he remembered all their names. He remembered they were there. He remembered to write to them as he wrote this letter. And I'm sure he didn't want to miss anybody. Do you ever do that? You don't want to miss people. Thank God that's always dangerous. 26. And my guess is, especially, his connection with Priscilla and Aquila. His connection with Priscilla and Aquila, one of the first names he names in Romans 16. He actually, in Romans 16, calls her Prissa. I think just to let people know there, he had a close relationship with them. Her nickname. So that he was making connections, he was trying to build credibility because he would eventually go there. And he knew he would go there. So he wanted to make these connections and nurture these relationships and give himself credibility not only in his relationships, but also who he is and what he writes. And Paul is the perfect person to write into the situation that was going on in Rome. The perfect person. If you don't know Paul's background, the first, the first aspect of his background is he was the child of a Roman citizen and a Jew. And so he had both worlds. Secondly, he was raised in the finest secular or Hellenistic schools of his day. He had the best secular education. It would be today. Most of us would say, oh, they went to Harvard, they went to Yale, they went to Princeton. It was an Ivy League school. You know the sad part about that? Is those schools started off as Christian institutions. And now we refer to them as secular schools. But that's the kind of school he was raised in. And then when he came of age, his parents sent him off to Jerusalem. And he was raised in the school of Gamaliel, one of the finest Pharisees of his day. And Paul was a rising star in Pharisaism. See, as much as Jews were spread throughout the kingdom, throughout the empire, the Roman Empire, and for several reasons, as a matter of fact, the diaspora, the first diaspora or dispersion took place in 721 B.C. when Israel was conquered by Assyria. Then the second one took place in 586 when Judea and Jerusalem were conquered 
by the Babylonians. So all these people went into exile. And they would end up settling in different cities. And there would be business opportunities and their family would be raised there. And as much as there's often been this migration back to Israel, back to the Middle East, these people said, no, we're doing quite well where we are. And it's probably why these intermarriages took place. And so Paul was the product of one of these intermarriages. He goes to the best schools. So he has credibility in the Gentile world. He has credibility in the Jewish world. So he could make these connections, which was critical when he's writing to the Romans. Critical. Not only that, his name is Paul, which is a Gentile name. You know what his name was before it was Paul? Anybody? Saul. Saul was a good Jewish name. From good Jewish stock. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And I don't know if you know anything about the tribe of Benjamin, but the tribe of Benjamin was considered this really strong people. Almost warrior people. They were the ones, if you wanted someone who was zealous... You'd call the Benjaminites. They were the first ones. The Levites were right there with them. And who was the first king of Israel? Saul. And what tribe was Saul from? Benjamin. Which is why they probably named this child Saul. They thought, we expect great, th great things from this guy. So they named him Saul. So he comes from wonderful stock. They have great expectations. They invest in him in the finest schools. They send him off to get all this education. And he becomes a Christian. Not necessarily a success as we think of people that are successful today, is it? People in the computer science world and engineering world and medical world... And people that are successes in business and entrepreneurial. And Paul has the best education. But God had a plan. God had a plan. God was going to take him and use him in such a way to touch many lives. So the gospel had been there for 20 years. Then there was exile from Rome in the late 40s. And so Paul, right around 50, meets Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. And they share ministry together for a year and a half, maybe a little longer. And then the exile winds down as the persecution of Jews and Jewish Christians, which is the ones who were being persecuted in Rome, dies down. So the Jews and Jewish Christians who were from Rome now start migrating back. Guess what happened in their absence? The Gentile Christians took over. Did you ever see that? Someone leaves, and all of a sudden, they come back and things are different. Someone wants the power. Someone gets the power, maybe by default. You don't know if and when these people are coming back. You have a change in regime in a business. You see that. You have a change or a shift in a church and you see that although the church really never has tensions or di divisions 
See, and that was the situation in Rome because the Jewish Christians were the first believers. And so they had established themselves as the leadership. When the Jewish Christians and the Jews were exiled from Rome, the Gentile Christians took over the church. And so as Paul is writing, he wants all of them to understand he understands them, who they are, no matter what their background is. He understands them if they're not Jewish. He understands them if they're Jewish. And he says, look, you all are Christians. You all are called out. You all are meant to be a part of the church and you need to figure it out and be on the same page. And so Paul writes his letter as is typical of his letters. He introduces himself first. He says, Paul, an apostle. Okay, well, that's a big deal in the church. If you're an apostle then you experienced Jesus Christ firsthand. If you're an apostle, you were sent. So if you read Acts chapter 8, you see that he experienced Jesus firsthand. And then when you read Acts chapter 13, you see that he was sent by the church. And he became the apostle to the Gentiles. So now he has credibility with the Gentiles, at least, if not the Jews as well. But even though he's throwing this title around, he's an apostle, what does he say right afterwards? And a servant. Don't get the wrong idea. Because sometimes we think there's this hierarchy in the church. That someone has a better than place. When in fact, when you understand your role as Jesus modeled, as the apostles learned, when you're called to be an apostle... Number one, you're called out of the world. You're called by Him as part of the church, the ecclesia, called out ones. That's what it means. But then you're sent back. Not to lord it over people, not to condescend, but to be their servant in the church and as you reach out to other people. So Paul says, don't get the wrong idea when I say apostle. Because I'm also called to be a servant, a slave, for the sake of the gospel. And as he writes, he writes as an evangelist. You know, we don't like that word today, evangelism. Evangelical, do we? There's a lot of people that get uncomfortable with that word. When in fact what the word means, many of you have heard me say this before, the prefix ev, evangelism, ev Actually, in the Greek is EU, which means good or well. It's shorthand for good news, which is what the word gospel means. And then the next segment of the word, angel, it's from the word angel. It's the messenger who brings the good news. That's all it is. When you're doing evangelism, all you're doing is you want to be that messenger who's bringing the good news to people that desperately need good news. So Paul, first and foremost, writes as an evangelist. Secondly, he writes as an apologist. And I don't know how many of you really understand the word apologist. It's not that he's apologizing for the gospel. I'm sorry I have to share this with you. It's really bad news. That's not what he's doing. An apologist is someone who is defending the faith. He's saying, you need to understand from the foundation of the world, which he gets to. This is what God has been trying to reveal to his people. To all people. 
His truth. And so he's making a defense. It's called an apology. But he does so in a pastoral way. He doesn't do it heavy-handed. He greets 26 individuals that he loves. He does so in a compassionate way. He does so in an affirming way. He says, your faith's been known throughout all the world. He's writing and coming because he wants to encourage them and strengthen them. Share a gift with them. He's trying to be pastoral as he shares this message. He says, I long to see you. I'm eager to be with you. The words of a pastor. So Paul in no way is seeking to be heavy-handed. And then he writes these two phrases. Son of God and Son of Man, or Son of David. Son of David by the flesh, Son of God by the Spirit. He's basically saying, Jesus is God incarnate. Fully God, fully man. He's coming to be the Messiah. And he's laying the foundation for that right at the beginning. Son of David. That's what the Gospel reading is about. Read it again when you get home. That he is the Son of David in the flesh. And he is the Son of God in the Spirit. So you have exactly what you need for our sacrifice as the Messiah. And by the way, Paul uses the word flesh 81 times in his writing. It's an important word. How many in here have been through the discovery class at one point or another? Raise your hand. Quite a number of you. Some of you may remember this. Some of you may not. There's actually two words in Greek for flesh. One is soma. And soma really is more frequently translated as the body. It's what God gave us when we became human. It's what we have free choice with. To choose or not to choose. It's neutral in the scripture. The other word in Greek for flesh is sarx. Sounds a little not so nice as soma, right? Well, the word sarx in Greek... Is the, is the side that tends towards being against God's will. It's the flesh that Paul will unpack in Romans 6, 7, 8. We'll get to that. But here when he says Jesus was born in the flesh, he uses the term in a more neutral way. That he's really human. And he wants them to understand that. He's the son of David. In other words, just like Paul had pedigree as a Benjaminite, so Jesus has pedigree as the son of David. This kingly stock, this Messiah stock that Jesus talked about in Matthew's Gospel that we read this morning. But he's also the son of God. He's God incarnate who came to show us how to live and came to be our sacrifice for sin. That's why Jesus came. And there's a battle internally with us, with the flesh, that we will see in Romans 6 and 7. We see it in our culture. But we also see it, if we're honest, internally with us. And that's also what Paul is addressing in these early chapters as we want pack. That there's the culture on the one hand, but there's each one of us personally on the other hand. We have that internal conflict. And if you're a believer, you know what I'm talking about. That we struggle sometimes with sin, the temptation to sin, our own flesh. And God wants to deliver us from that. Paul will also address that as this letter unfolds. Finally, as, as he unfolds this package, he refers to grace. 
The faith comes by grace. The faith comes as a gift that you cannot earn, that you do not deserve. If you hear me say anything else today, or nothing else today, hear me say, faith is a gift that comes by God's grace through Jesus Christ. And Paul talks about the grace and that you receive the gospel. And much like the grace, the call on Abraham's life, which we will talk about later in chapter 4, chapters 3 and 4, that you're blessed to be a blessing. That you've been given this grace so that you come to faith and you share that faith with others. So that you come to faith and you learn to serve others. That's why you've been given the gift. You know, so often in Christianity, we focus on the decision. You know what I mean by that? I talked about this the other night in my Wednesday night class. So often, we're about decisions, which can end up staying in your head. God's looking for disciples. A changed heart, a changed life. So many people want their fire insurance. Hey, I believe. I made a decision for Jesus. I've got my fire insurance. I'm good. God wants a changed life. God wants growth. God wants us to bear fruit. and He wants us to be a blessing to each other in the church and a blessing to those outside the church. That's what we're meant to be. That's what Paul's aim is for these people that were going through some tensions, some struggles. He wanted to be clear on the gospel. And so as the coming weeks unfold, I have to tell you, I've been praying for you more intentionally this summer than probably any other. Because while I was away and working on my sermon series, I became so mindful of the fact that we need to, as a church, be clear on the gospel. United in that truth. That we together as a church need to be connected to each other in fellowship, in service to grow, to care for each other, to love one another. We together need to be united in mission, God's mission to the world. That we together need to be so filled with the Holy Spirit. I've been praying for you. I've been praying for this series. And I'm excited about finally doing Romans 1 through 8. You can pray for me as I prepare my sermons that they're not too long. Because <laughs> there's a lot to get through. But you can also pray for yourself and for the rest of the church here. That we are intentionally growing together. That we are clear on the gospel. And that we're willing to take the gospel to the world. Let's pray. Lord, as Paul wrote to the Romans... 
And in most of his letters, he wrote to the saints. We are the saints of today, not that we're better than or holier than, but that we're called out to be holy, set apart. That we're called out not just for decisions, but for discipleship. That we're called out and sent to be your disciples in the world. Lord, I pray that we would be clear on the truth of the gospel. That we would be united because of the gospel as your body. Lord, that we would so be so filled with the Holy Spirit that we would become prayerful for one another, mutually encouraging, strengthening one another. And Lord, that we would see ourselves as in mission, your mission to the world with this gospel. Lord, I pray that you would renew in us an understanding of the basics, clarity in the truth, and equipped for ministry and mission. Lord, use these coming weeks to bless your church and grow your church. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.